And as you're turning there, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you or they were going to go far away for quite some time? A long enough period uh, to, for them to give you or maybe you were giving them uh, additional directives for when you finally did reunite afterwards. So you're going to be gone for a long time and I want you to know this in the meantime. Maybe it was a parent leaving for work overseas um, in a different location or perhaps um, of a different nature. Um, it was a kind of salutation where maybe someone on their deathbed uh, or maybe before a medical procedure or something of that kind was giving you information where there might not actually be any return. Kind of the last words of a loved one. But it's in these moments where this person quickly consolidates their message into the most important words. They sum everything up, kind of boil it down and tell you what is most important. And what they say in these moments matters more than anything to them. That's what is on their mind at the last moments, right? Now, this is something of what is happening here in our text this morning. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going away and he's going to be gone for a while. And where he's going, they cannot follow. They're not going to be able to follow him. So because of this, as we read this text, we should take to heart the full weight of his statements. What he tells them is of lasting importance. It's not just a passing teaching. He's had many of those as we go through the the Gospels. This is actually the beginning of the final teaching, the last teaching before he goes to his death on the cross. So let's think of it in that frame of mind as we read our text this morning in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. Church, these are the words of God. Let's give attention to them. When he had gone out, speaking of Judas there, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy word this morning, your inspired word, where your Holy Spirit has penned these things, given it to the minds of men to write these down for us. Lord, I pray that that same Holy Spirit that inspired the text that's been carried down through the ages to come to us today, that it would inspire our hearts, engage us in our innermost being to be able to be united to what your word is instructing us for this very moment. Lord, help us to be receptive and open to the things that you're telling us. Lord, I pray that you would enlarge our thinking and our hearts as we look at your word this morning. Lord, let us not miss Jesus, your son. 
For it is all about Jesus when it comes to the scriptures. They all bear witness to what he has done. So, Lord, above all, we pray that we would see Jesus in and through this text speaking to us this morning. And we pray it all in his name. Amen. Amen. So we've already talked in prior sermons, for those of you who have been here, about the particular glory of Jesus. His glory is seen most clearly where? In his death. On the cross, and if you haven't heard those sermons, you're welcome to go back and listen to that. But I'm not going to go and uh, rehash all of that. The cross is where Jesus is literally and figuratively crowned as clean, king. That is where the glory is. That is where he is biggest and most evidently seen as glorious to us. So we won't spend any more time hashing that out, uh, what he's getting at when he's talking about his glory that he shares with the Father. He's talking about his death. On the cross. Okay? So he prepares his disciples by addressing them as little children. Did you notice that? Little children. And if you read further in the, the scriptures, you'll see that John catches on this uh, to this too. John addresses his church as little children too. So little children is a tender and fatherly way to deliver this final teaching to his disciples whom he's about to leave. Okay, he's going to leave his disciples and go. And it's not a one-to-one analogy, but it's something like when a father kind of gets down on one knee before his child and he tells his child he's going off somewhere. Maybe he's going off to war. Who knows where he's going off? But he gets down on one knee and you can kind of see this fatherly, tender care towards his loved one that he's going off. And he says, little children, where I am going, you cannot come now. You can't come now. So there's the posture of this text. That's that's what prefers this text is this tenderly fatherly affection. But what is he actually getting at? What is Jesus saying? We might ask, where is Jesus going that they cannot go? Now, you may have noticed as we've been going through the Gospels for some time now, over a year, this is actually the third time that John records Jesus saying that he will go and that his onlookers won't be able to follow him. This is the third time. The first time is in John 7, and the Pharisees suppose that Jesus is going to another place. They think he's going somewhere. They think that he may be referring to this dispersion among the Greeks. Okay, So he's going out to another place. In other words, they think that he's going to another place outside the center of the Jews in Jerusalem to preach his message. He's not going to stick around here in the center of Israel. He's going to go out to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. Okay, That's where they think he's going the first time. But the second time Jesus says that he's going going away, in chapter 8, they think that he's contemplating suicide. They think that Jesus is talking about killing himself. So they think that he's referring to a different realm the second time, the realm of the dead, where he's going, you can't follow because he's about to kill himself, they think. Okay. So when we come to this third occurrence in the text, the third time John talks about this, the third time Jesus brings this up, there's still this ambiguity as to where Jesus is actually referring to. What is he talking about? And for this reason, commentators have supposed that it may actually be both a place and a realm. And as, as you've been following along, this is pretty common, isn't it? With John, there's lots of double meanings. There's lots of ways in which John says one thing, but he really means multiple things. There's a lot behind what he's saying. So on the one hand, Jesus is clearly preparing his disciples for death. That's a fact. He's speaking about the glory of the cross, which means that he's going to a different realm than them, the realm of the dead, right? And this is why Peter is so ready to speak up about dying for Jesus, right? You're going to go there, Jesus? I'll go there too. I will die for you, Jesus, he says in verse 37. So he thinks he's ready to follow Jesus into that realm of death. But on the other hand, 
Jesus will begin talking in the next chapter about the place that he is referring, uh, about the place that he is preparing for them. You're familiar with the scripture, right? I go to prepare a place for you. So he's not just talking about his death, but he may be also talking about his ascension into heaven. Okay, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So they won't follow Jesus now, he says, but they will afterward. Okay, meaning they won't die now, nor will they go to the place that he's preparing for them now, but they will afterward, as it says in verse 36. So they are going to go there eventually. So where this leaves them... And frankly, where it leaves us as we read this text and we try to get our minds and our our hearts into this text, where it leaves them and us is in the present place and realm. We are here. God currently has us living in the now. That's where we are right now. We're not then. We are now. So while we are here, not there, we are given instruction on how to live now. And while Jesus is preparing a place for us, we need to also realize that he is also preparing us for a place. Okay, He's preparing us for a place. And this is where I want to spend most of our time focusing this morning. In order to love the place where we are going to go, we must be conformed to it. We need to look like it. If we're going to love it, we need to be like it. So Jesus tells us and tells them how they are to do this in verse 34. These are the instructions on how to live now. This is what he gives to them. A new commandment. Love is the new commandment of the kingdom. You know, as we look at this, as we think about Jesus saying, I give you a new commandment to love, we don't often give enough uh, thought and, and weight to well-worn words like commandment or love. Right? We throw these words around all the time, but maybe we're not really slowing down enough to think about what those words really mean. When Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, he's bringing this word to them with the same, maybe even probably greater force than the original Ten Commandments. Right? When Jesus, who has spoke of the glory of God, glorifying himself in his personhood, gives us a new commandment, when he gives this new law to us, we should give it the same attention as the first commandments. Do you remember the call to worship? What happened when God gave the law to them, when the glory was shown to them? Put them on their faces. They are bowing down to the Lord in worship. This commandment is holy because it's coming from a holy person. Jesus is that same God that originally gave the commandment to them in the Old Testament. So ask yourselves, why is it that we read, I give you a new commandment, if we're honest and more realistic, why is it that we probably read this something more attuned to, I give you a new sentiment? Right, I give you a new sentiment. Since it comes from the mouth of Jesus, right? No, Jesus, or no doubt Jesus is tender towards his disciples, yes. We've already seen how he speaks to them like a father. But perhaps we have allowed our culture to mar our image of Jesus into a spineless dad who's essentially saying, now be nice to your brothers, guys. That's often the way that we, the way that we take Jesus' words. We think of them as this passive dad that really doesn't care what we do. We don't take him seriously, and he's just all the time saying, guys, stop it. Stop it, guys. Come on. We don't take the words commandment and love seriously enough. What I'm concerned about is that we have not beheld the full weight of glory and Jesus' two big words here, commandment and love. Our fallen condition is such that we don't like to be told what to do. We just don't like it. When someone tells us to do something, we want to do the opposite very often. 
And it would pacify our fragile egos if we softened the blow of a commandment into a sentiment or maybe best wishes. Or at tops, we might be able to tolerate some advice. We don't even really like advice, though. We don't like being told what to do. When we treat a commandment in this way, though, we essentially say that it can be applied or ignored at our discretion. We'll do it if we feel like it. If we feel it's a good sentiment or good advice, well, then we'll do it. Whatever works for me in the moment, right? If it works, then great. If not, well, then we'll go about our business. It doesn't really work for me. So that is the first concern I have. We don't treat commandment as commandment. We don't take the full force. The second is that we have allowed the world to define what love is. Do we really know what love is? What comes to your mind when you think of love? Because right now, we live in such a world where they define love as tolerance. Love is agreeableness to yourself. If you like what someone is doing, that is loving. You hear things like, if you really love me, you'll accept me as I am. You'll accept me for who I am. Don't ask me to change. Because if you're asking me to do that, that is not loving. That's actually hate if you're asking me to do anything that I don't want to do. So the final determiner of whether something is loving or not in our world right now is subject of judgment. If you feel like it. And this takes us into the ambiguous realm of niceness. The niceness world. That postmodern relativistic air that we all breathe every day where love equals nice. And good luck defining what nice is, right? So when we don't take the commandments or love seriously, we essentially have Jesus saying, guys, I'd really like it if we all just were nice to each other and got along, right? That is really what the world is saying about Jesus. If you've, if you've listened to the world for even a moment, you're realizing that I'm not building a straw man here. If you ask what most people in the world, not in the church, are saying about Jesus, they think of Jesus in this way. There's no force to his commands, and they've watered down love into just what they want and what they feel like. But, so that's what the world says, but if you paid attention to Jesus through the Gospels, you'll realize that Jesus is not at all interested in tolerating false belief or self, uh, self-defined identities. Making up who you want to be. Jesus isn't about that. He's not interested in accepting people the way they are or who they identify as. Actually, quite the opposite. He's constantly asking people to do what he wants them to do. He's saying that the things that he does, uh, uh, he says the things that he does that people might actually repent. They're turning away from. They're changing and believing in him to find a new identity. He says, I don't want your old identity. That's actually a bad identity. It's a fallen identity. It's corrupt I'm calling you to something different. In fact, when Jesus speaks the truth in love, it always commands us to be changed. That's what the word of God does. It's living and active. It cuts down to the heart, all the way down to the, the separation of soul and spirit. It causes us to be different. Okay? So Jesus is fundamentally opposed to a worldly niceness that allows uh, one to stay in a delusional state of subjective judgment. Where we're always going about our business according to what we feel. When he gives us this new commandment, it's clear about the rubric. It is about love, and it is about himself. He is that image of love. He isn't lacking a perception of other people's feelings. He's giving them eyes, actually, to see because they're blind. He's giving them eyes to see what true love actually looks like. It looks like me, he says. It looks like the way that I have loved you, as it says in verse 34. How are you to love others? As I have loved 
you, Jesus says. In other words, this is an experiential kind of way where we love others according to something that we've received from Jesus, where Jesus has affected us and loved us. Now, at first, it might like it might seem like this is the same as the world's definition of love because he defines love by himself, doesn't he? Right? That's what the world wants to do. Everyone wants to define love by himself. But he isn't saying here that you should love one another as they would want to be loved. That's not what he says. That's a pseudo love. That's a false love of tolerance where you're just doing things to people what they would want to be done to. No, Jesus says you love others as I have loved you. Now, think about this. How has Jesus loved his disciples? If we really slow down and think about the Jesus of the Bible, the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, think about the way that Jesus loved the people around him, the way that he loved his disciples. Well, it remind us in the next chapters that they didn't even choose him, that he chose them, right? He says, you didn't choose me, disciples. I choose, or I chose you. So love isn't always a choice, like we like to say so often. Love isn't always a choice. Sometimes love is actually bringing someone to where they want to love that choice eventually, right? So love isn't always waiting for a movement towards yourself. He calls out their sins when he's talking to the disciples and the people around. He, he beckons them to a new identity. So love doesn't live and let live like the world says that we should. That's the love of the world. Love does not live and let live. It calls us to something new. When he loves him, or when he loves them, the disciples like this, he calls them to love others like this. When he does this, he cuts through the subjective judgment of niceness. He cuts right through it and marks himself as the objective judge, right? So we're not all subjective judges here. It is Jesus who is the one objective judge. He is the new object which we reference in determining if love is true. Jesus defines love for us. But there's something deeper here that goes beyond the fact that he's just the objective standard for love. There's more than that. When he gives the the commandment to love one another... Notice he says love one another, not love all people. He's talking to a group here. He says love one another, kind of back and forth. As I have loved you, he's not particularly uh, particularly speaking to all people, but a love within the brotherhood of believers. He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to his disciples. And he's saying, by this love, you will know that you are my disciples. He's talking specifically to his disciples. And this is probably why the text is so clear on Judas going out and already being gone before Jesus gives the new commandment. Remember last week we talked about apostasy and how Judas goes out and he shows that he was not of them. Why? Because he went out from them. He didn't remain with them. He showed himself that he wasn't a true disciple. Why? Because he betrayed Jesus. He wasn't loving Jesus, or he wasn't loving the people around him the way that Jesus loved him. His love, his false love, showed him to be an apostate. And that is why Jesus, before he even begins talking about this new commandment, this, this new kind of love, he waits till Judas is gone. So he's just talking to the faithful eleven now in his own circle. So the newness of the commandment is not love, though. I want you to catch this. The newness of the commandment is not love, it's Christian love and there's a difference although or all, all through the the old testament we see a commandment to love right this isn't new if you look back in the old testament at the very beginning leviticus 19 8 commands us it's a commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves which if we're honest it does still leave a little bit of subjective judgment in there on the nature of how we come to love others doesn't it you're still supposed to figure that out. you love your neighbor as yourself okay 
That's what the Old Testament tells us. But one large problem there is that we don't know what true love looks like until Jesus. Have you thought about this before? We don't really know what true love looks like until Jesus. Because pre-Jesus, we had never seen the perfect image of love played out in humanity. We didn't really know what it looked like. Now, now how can I say that? How can we say that we didn't even really know what love looks like until Jesus? Well, follow with me. If God is love, and he is, right? If God is love, and if Jesus is God, then before the incarnation, before Jesus, before God took on flesh, we have never seen a fully and perfectly embodied love. Incarnational love. We hadn't seen a perfect human being. Therefore, we'd never seen a perfectly loving human being. There was no image for us to look at. We'd only seen a veiled glory of God. A veiled love. Moses was a very meek man, but he didn't love like Jesus loved. David was a very loving man, but there's a lot of flaws too. Right? It was, it was a veiled love to where we get little glimpses and pictures and, uh, and abstract ideas of what love looks like. But until Jesus, we don't fully know. So again, this is why Jesus can use himself as the objective standard of love. But the new aspect thing, or the new aspect here, the new thing about this is the newness of the commandment is not the law of love. That was already there, right? It was already told in the Old Testament. It's not the law of love. It's actually the gospel of love. Think about that. It's not the law of love because that was already there. The newness of the new commandment is the gospel of love commended towards us in Christ. God loves us in Christ. The good news of God's love is Jesus' actions towards us. Jesus loving you and realizing that experientially. Okay, Realizing that Jesus loves me. That's how you start to understand what true love is. Paul says, God commended his love towards us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's the way that God shows us his love. He shows us his love in Jesus. So while we still had contrary desires, there's even texts that say while we hated God, he still loved us. He still moved towards us and didn't wait for us to do something first. He loved us first, and then we love him. You have to get the order right. If you don't have Jesus loving you first, you miss it all. You're not going to fully understand this, okay? So he chose us and he called us forth by his grace. And that love towards us becomes the new motivator. We might say the the fuel to love one another. We can't really love until we realize what Jesus has done for us. Leon Morris writes of the newness of the commandment saying this. Someone I I really respect. I borrow a lot from him when I'm going through my commentaries. I respect this man. I think that there's a really great point about the newness of this commandment. He says this. The mutual affection... Christians have for one another on account of Christ's love for them. uh, That's the newness there. The the newness of this new commandment is the mutual affection Christians have for one another on account of Christ's love for them. A brotherhood has been created on the basis of Jesus's work for men. And there is a new relationship within that brotherhood. In other words, let me unpack this a little bit. Jesus has given us a new paradigm for love. Okay. We love not by law. But by gospel, we love not motivated by abstract commandment in the law where it says don't do this. And we say, well, what does that look like? Well, we haven't seen it perfectly yet. We'll see it one day. Right. It's not that we're loving. We're loving because of the good news displayed for us in Jesus in the gospel. Okay, when Jesus gives us the new commandment, what he's doing is forming a gospel centered community. 
Because it starts with Jesus' love towards people. And when he loves people, what Jesus is doing is loving a community into existence that is motivated, we might say, fueled by the love extended to them. That is the church. By Jesus loving his disciples, by Jesus loving his people, he actually constitutes something there and builds a new people. Okay, And this new commandment is absolutely necessary. Why? Because he's going away, he says. He's going to die for them in order to save them. And this sacrificial death that he dies for them becomes the key ingredient for them to understand how to love in the brotherhood. If you don't understand what Jesus is about to do on the cross, you are not going to be able to live that out. That's the reality here. Unless you see Jesus and his glory on the cross and his sacrificial death, you will miss that love. It'll be kind of like that maybe. You might get an abstract idea of it, but until you see Jesus dying for you, not dying in in general, but dying for you, you don't get a full grasp of the love of God. And so we desperately need this new commandment precisely because Jesus is going away. The teacher's departing. He's not with us. He's going to be with us one day. He'll, He'll come back. But remember, we live in the present, not the future. We live in the now. So he's not only preparing a place for us as he goes, but he's preparing us for the place that he is going to. Okay, So we've got to be able to love this place when we get there. And in that place, what we often don't realize is that we're all going to have to live with one another. We're all going to be together, something that we so often forget about in the church because we like our churches where we're kind of divided. We like these walls because the, the church over there, they don't do things like we do. So we don't have to love them, we think. Or at least that's the way that we often act, don't we? Because we don't agree. We have disagreements, so we think, well, they do their thing and we'll do our thing. But we forget that in heaven, there's not going to be all these walls. We're going to have to love each other in the place that Christ is preparing for us. And that's why we have to live now in the present, getting ready for that. That's why we need to be prepared for the place that he is preparing for us. So if you'd like to return to my initial analogy of the father going off, going maybe to war or whatever, and instructing his children to love one another as he loved them, uh, loved them, I want you to think about this. When someone does this, maybe the father does this, he's bringing order to his family while he's absent and preparing a place for them. He wants there to be order in his absence. As he goes off to war, what the children come to realize, though, as he's gone, is that the place that he's preparing uh, them for isn't in foreign lands, Right? He isn't returning so he can take them back away. I want you to catch this. He's returning to bring the place that he's conquered back to them. He's securing what they already have. He's securing the world that they live in. He's bringing heaven and earth into one. Right? On earth as it is in heaven. That's the way that we're called to live. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have now, not in the future. And the commandment is to love one another like he loved them. So when he returns, he'll find his household in order, ready to live with one another, loving the place already so that it's not chaotic when he returns, not fighting, not bickering, but having unity. That's why Jesus prays that his church would be one even as he and the Father are one. That's what he wants for us. And that's not just in these pews. That's the church. Think bigger than just village church. That's across the board. And by this directive being obeyed, others will know that we are his. That this is Jesus' family. When he talks to us and says, little children, do these things, people are going to know that we are like Jesus. We're part of his family. Like the father that tells his children, act like me, like I've uh, acted to you when I've been around you and I'm going to leave. That's what we should be like with Jesus telling us. 
We're going to look like our father. We're going to look like our teacher. We're going to look like the person who's been leading us all along. And when we do this, we're going to actually have a witness to people. They're going to see Jesus in a real way in us, over over his hands and feet is the way the scripture talks about this. It's amazing. But one of our present problems in the church is that we are prone to kind of hoard this love of Christ for ourselves. We want it just here to us, but withhold it from others when we tend to disagree. Well, I don't like what they think, so I'm just going to kind of cut them out, not love them. I'm going to live and let live, okay? I'm just going to let them be over there, and I'm going to be over here. We don't love our brothers and sisters to the point of death, do we? We don't try to reconcile and work things out. We don't enter into conversations like Jesus did to get to the bottom of things. We just live and let live. We just kind of get along. We're all nice to each other, right? This is the kind of love that we practically so often live out in the, in the church. We're not living out this radical Christianity where Jesus says, no, I want you to love like me. Where sometimes that might be a little bit of stepping on toes, but on both ends, right? You might have to take some too, not just dish it out. This is the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. So when we uh, do, when we live this false love, though, that doesn't take ni- or doesn't take love seriously, where love kind of just becomes nice and commandment becomes sentiment, what we end up doing is throwing our brothers and sisters under the bus, just like Peter was about to do to Jesus, right? Jesus is, or Peter is so ready to die for Christ. He says, "I'll die for you, Jesus," and Jesus says, "Will you though? Will you? No, he can't. He can't carry that out." Because until Peter realizes Christ's love for him, he's not going to be able to live that love out for Christ, right? Jesus had to die to get it through Peter's thick skull, to get it through our thick skull, the kind of love that he has for us. We won't ever realize that until we see Jesus on the cross. We won't be able to live out this love until we have that personal, intimate experience of Jesus loving me, not just Jesus loving a being, but Jesus loving me. We won't be able to live that out until we take that inside our own hearts. And it is this love that keeps us from looking like the world in our interactions. This is what shows us to be Jesus' disciples. This is what makes us look like Jesus. And if you miss this love, church, you miss Christianity. You miss the whole thing. You're not a disciple. You're, not, you're showing yourself not to be a disciple. You're showing yourself to be a Judas. You're, you're going out. You're not loving like Jesus loved. And this is why Jesus says you will know whether someone is a disciple or not, based not upon doctrine. doesn't say that. doesn't say based upon your ideology, based upon your denomination, your ecclesiastical affiliation, who you know, your works. No, it's not based on any of that. People will know that you are Jesus's. You will know that you are his disciples based on love. Love alone is how we really, really know. And Paul goes as far as to say that if you have not love, you're nothing. That's a scary reality, isn't it? That we are nothing. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we're Christians because we have all this stuff. We have our doctrine. We have our thinking. We have our confessions. We have all this. But if we have not love, you have not anything. You don't have a thing. So as we close, I want us to return to where we began. This is a commandment, not a sentiment. Right? We need to... Take the full weight of this. This is a commandment to love like Christ loves us. Not just like he loves generally, but love like he loves us. The charge to you this morning is to love one another. Love one another. The motivator, how we do that, is the good news that you have been loved. You're only going to be able to do this if you are fueled by the love that Jesus has loved you with. And the kind of love is particularly displayed for us where? On the cross. 
It's that kind of love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a tough love. It's hard, but it's also tender. It's fatherly. It's the kind of love that comes to the loved ones and says, little children, I need you to know this. I need you to hear this. Where I'm going, you can't go, but you're going to have to live. You're going to have to go on. It's a tough kind of love. So you have quarrels among you, do you? You're a Christian and you're dealing with other Christians in the world. How does Christ crucified dissolve that dispute by his love towards you? Think about that. Because this is where it gets really practical, isn't it? How can you love one another, love your brothers and sisters in Christ that aren't necessarily at this church? How can you love them into unity where you are coming together and being on the same page? How do you do that? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus and the disciples, they don't start out on the same page, do they? It is through love that they are brought together. So how are you going to do that in your context? How are you going to do that in your vocation? How are you going to do that wherever you are serving in life? Maybe it's, it, maybe it's even closer to home. Maybe it's not even out there. Maybe it's your marriage is shaky. Right? Maybe it's very close to home. So are you going to look to the law where there's that abstract commandment to, to love your neighbor, that person that's really next to you, that really close to you, that's your neighbor? Is that how you're going to solve your marriage problems? Look to the law to save you? Or are you going to look to the gospel? To, to where Jesus displays his love for you, maybe that's the place that you need to look to to solve your marriage problems. Rather than saying, well, I'm not going to do that, and if he doesn't do this, then we'll just have a, a mutual agreement. No, maybe you need to look to Jesus where he practically, incarnationally exhibits love for us to where we can see what marriage looks like. When he says, marriage looks like my relationship to the bride of Christ, to the church. Maybe that will reconstitute and reshape and reform your marriage if you think about it like that. Or maybe you're, you're single and you're just on your own and your love tank is empty and you feel unmade, unmotivated to love anyone. I don't feel loved, so I'm not going to be able to love anyone else if I don't feel loved. That, that's a reality that some people live in, especially single people. Right? I don't feel loved, so how am I going to love someone else if I don't feel loved? Now, when you're in this boat, are you waiting on a refill of love from someone besides Christ? Right? Are you making your love towards others dependent, dependent on others? Right? That's what you're doing. If you're waiting on someone to love you before you can love them, are you trying to distill love received from others instead of simply tapping into the source of the gospel where Jesus says, I have loved you. That's how you're going to love other people. You don't wait for people to love you. You love because I have loved you first. That's what fuels your love tank. That's what helps you to love others around you. So church, this is the new commandment that redefines how we look at love among us. This is the the new way that we see the world. This love, it not only is a directive, it's not just a commandment, but the love of Christ on the cross is the very basis of the community in which we can love one another. It's the basis of it. Jesus' love forms the church. It forms us. What we are here, this body, it is formed by love. Love is what builds the church into the place that Christ is preparing us for and for us. Right? It's both of those. And without this love, the church loses its validity to all people. The world is not going to know what Jesus looks like until we express that love towards them because it's based on his love. Because Jesus says, by this, people will know that you are my disciples. So if you have not love... You have not a witness. Think about that. If you have not love, you don't have anything. Love is the basis for all things. Love is really Christianity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.